next, our final news roundup and information overload hour. All right, news roundup, information overload hour, Sean Hannity show. In just a minute, we're going to be joined uh, by a volunteer uh, journalist uh, inside of a bunker with 15 other people and get an on-the-ground Kiev uh, perspective. He's in Kiev, which is under heavy fire and has been now for days. It's gotten worse the last couple of days. Um, first, I want to go back to, if you missed it earlier today, you know, here we have Kamala Harris, the great representative that she is of our great country, asked about the Ukrainian refugee crisis. And uh, what did she do? She giggles. Thank you, Madam Vice President. I wanted to ask you about some reporting that my colleague here in Poland noticed. He recently spoke with the mayor of the largest border town who told him that the refugee system is essentially not set up for this, that it will collapse. It's an improvised system that can work for maybe two weeks, but not indefinitely. And I'm wondering what the United States is going to do more specifically to set up a permanent infrastructure. And relatedly, is the United States willing to make a specific allocation for Ukrainian refugees? And for President Duda, I wanted to know if you think, and if you asked the United States to specifically accept more refugees. Okay. (laughs) A friend in need is a friend in need. (laughs) Okay, so this time. What was so funny about it? I, I maybe I'm just not in on the joke. Now, just to compare that, let's go to uh I think he's been doing a terrific uh job for Fox News, and that's Trey Yangst. Uh he's been in Kiev the entire time. He's been through every air siren, he's been through every bombing, and he takes a little bit more seriously than Kamala Harris. Yeah, guys, this joint press conference came across like a bilateral check-in. It was detached from the reality on the ground. As the pair spoke, there were air raid sirens sounding in the Ukrainian capital of Kiev. We heard this diplomatic and political speak from Vice President Harris. The Ukrainian people don't need that. They need anti-tank missiles. They need anti-aircraft batteries. I mean, we heard just all of this talk that you hear out of Washington about cooperation and friendship and to be nimble and swift in the response and understanding and appreciating. There are people dying as we speak on the ground in Ukraine, across this country, thousands of people. And the capital is being targeted from the ground and the air. The Ukrainians right now are calling for a no-fly zone because women and children are being bombed by Russian forces. And while we heard the vice president there talk about this hospital in Mariupol where three people, according to officials, were killed overnight in a Russian strike, she didn't talk about the consequences for that. Ouch. I mean, pretty powerful. Then President Zelensky, you know, is asking the West and Poland stepped up. Poland said, we'll give you our MiGs. And and Blinken seemed all enthusiastic about it. Then all of a sudden, uh, Joe got nervous. Never mind. Uh, maybe not a good idea. The Pentagon came out and said, no, we don't support this. Listen to Zelensky. Listen, we have a war. We do not have time for all these signals. This is not ping pong. This is about human lives. We ask once again, solve it faster. Do not shift the responsibility. Send us plans. Anyway, joining us now is Mark Savchuk. Um, he's leading a volunteer journalism effort in Ukraine. He is the coordinator of the Ukrainian Volunteer Journalist Initiative, and he's now in Kiev. He's living in a bomb shelter with 15 people. He's given us a real-time, on-the-ground perspective. Uh, Mark, first of all, thank you for being with us. You actually in the bomb shelter right now? Yes, I am. Well, thank you for being with us. Tell me a little bit about what the situation is like on the ground there for you. 
Uh, okay, sure. Well, uh, first of all, it's not 15 people. It's more like 10, uh, so not as bad <laughs> as it sounds. Uh, but uh, well, you, you well, said before, that, uh, before you answer yeah. that question, how, how many square yeah. feet are you living in there? Are you living in like a, you know, a 10 by 12 area, or do, is there some space for everybody? I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not going to be able to answer you in square feet because we use meters. <laughs> I'm sorry. Oh, I got <laughs> yeah. it. Well, and I can't, uh, I can't look, convert it's, either, it's, so we're, not, we're both in the yeah. same boat, but go ahead. Yeah, well, uh, look, it's, uh, it's cramped, yeah, but, it, you know, it's livable. So I wouldn't say that we're, like, in some kind of drastic situation or something like that. Obviously, it's cramped. Well, Obviously, it's not uh, well, in let the Let me ask you this. How, how are you getting... Areas. Yeah. How are you getting bare necessities? Yeah. How are you getting food and water and maybe medicine if needed? Yeah, easy. Uh, so uh, currently in Kiev, let, let's you know, let's get back to the uh, question of uh, how how is the city doing right now? Uh, all the basic functions uh, are there. So uh, we have basic uh, banking services. We have basic. Uh, uh, public transport. We have basic grocery stores are open. Yes, of course, everything is quite limited, but it's there. So if you want to go out and buy like milk and bread and stuff like that, you, you can do that. Obviously, there will be some uh, products on the shelf that are going to be empty. So there will be none of, uh, say, white bread, for example, but you will definitely not starve. You know, the, you know, uh, products are there. Uh, even public transport, even that is working, even, even though it's limited as well. There are big queues on the gas stations, uh, because again, they are very limited. But again, the petrol is there. If you need to, uh, get your car, uh, filled, uh, you will be able to do that. And the grocery stores, they work also as a cash machine. Uh, so that also works. So you say, how do we get supplies? Well, we just go to the shops and get them and buy them. Uh, like but, that. But, th- but that's for now. I I hope you're doing a little bit of stocking up on on some bare necessities. Uh, yeah, doing, yes, yes, yes. We do a lot of stocking up. But, a lot. But now <laughs> all the coverage that I have seen, especially in the last three days, shows that Putin seems to have surrounded Kiev, the capital of Ukraine, your country, um, uh, and he, that he's now surrounded, and sirens are going off frequently, a lot of bombings. And, yeah. and how often are you hearing those sirens go off and how close have these bombs uh, exploded in terms of your location? Yeah, well, that's not true. Uh, he has not surrounded. He, he hasn't managed to do that. Even uh, in the on the uh, outskirts of Kiev, if you look at the map, I hate I beg to differ with you on the outskirts of <laughs> Kiev. If you look well, at the I'm map, <laughs> Russian troops yes. are on uh, have, have created a perimeter around on the outskirts, way outside of Kiev. They haven't made it to Kiev, but within anywhere yeah. between eight and sixteen miles out of Kiev. Yes, that's true. Uh, that's uh, uh, small cities that are around Kiev. They are fighting there. But I'm going to tell you, look, uh, if I can, if I want to get out of Kiev right now, I can do this easily. We have like literally uh, uh, lots of cars, lots of cargo cars coming into Kiev and resupplying us. Obviously, if the city would be would have been surrounded, that wouldn't be possible, right? I mean, come on, if the city is surrounded, you can't get supplies in. Uh, well, what, so, I'm, what I'm uh, saying sure. is, it is it is he's moved closer in the last three days. He was 25 um, miles away from Kiev, 
Now he's anywhere between 8 and 16 miles away. So it seems uh, like they're closing in. And I also, because our own reporters have been there on air while bombs have been exploding inside the capital city. Uh, I don't know when that was because I'm here for the last week. And they have been uh, heavy fighting at Irpin and Bucha and Gastomel. Those are three cities in the northwest of Kiev. And uh, they have been fighting there for the last week or so. Uh, they haven't been, uh, Russians haven't been able to move forward since then. And I'm talking for the last five or six days or so. Uh, so I, if you want to come, uh, come out of uh, Kiev and travel south, you can do this. Uh, so they haven't blocked this. Uh, they have blocked the uh, northwestern and western routes, and they have blocked the eastern route. But if you talk about southeastern routes and southwestern routes, it's, com- it's completely open, and you know trucks go there every single day. Now, the, to the credit of the Ukrainian people fighting back, and if you want to call yeah. it an insurgency, whatever you want to call it, they yeah. have been yeah. very effective at stopping extremely, yes, at, at stopping the movement of of Putin's yeah. troops. Uh, but certainly, yeah. I don't think there's any doubt in my mind that he has his sights set on on taking out, out the capital at some future point. I just think it's been more difficult than he planned. Um, and the damage that he's done is is very real. Now, um, of the people that are staying, there are estimates now that close to two million people have left the country. You're saying there's still time for people to get out. Are there are there still women and children in the capital city of Kiev right now or have they most of them left? Uh, well, most of them left, yes, but there are still some women and children in the city, yes, for sure. So I would say that there are still people who should leave uh, if they don't want to fight. And I'm actually very much for that, because once the fighting will start, you know, uh, we don't really want civilians running around the city. That that would be uh, a mistake. All right, quick break. We'll come back and we'll talk more with Mark Savchuk. He is helping lead the volunteer journalism effort in Ukraine. He's in a bunker right now as we're talking. Listen, millions of homeowners are still eligible for a lower mortgage rate. Millions and millions of you have not taken advantage of these historically low rates. Now, the Fed is meeting next week, and we expect the first of what may be as many as seven rate hikes, interest rate hikes this year according to Goldman Sachs. Now, you don't want that to happen. Now, the great news is our friends at AmericanFinancing.net, they want to give you a free, absolutely free, no obligation, mortgage consultation. Maybe it's about debt consolidation, whatever it happens to be. And they have mortgage experts waiting for your call. Now, that might mean hundreds of dollars you can save every month, maybe maybe thousands of dollars, depending on how expensive your home is. Oh, you owe it to yourself to see exactly how much you might be able to save. This is real money. Talk to their mortgage experts. They're waiting for your call at 866-615-9200, 866-615-9200. They're on the web at AmericanFinancing.net. But you got to go call now. Don't wait any longer. American Financing, NMLS, 182334, on finding solutions to today's biggest problems. This is The Hannity Show. All 
All right, we continue uh, with Mark Savchuk is with us. He's helping lead a volunteer journalism effort in Ukraine. Right now he's in a bomb shelter with, with 10 other people uh, talking to us from Kiev, the capital city of Ukraine. So tell me more about the people that are staying and what the plans are. And is mm-hmm. is this insurgency, is it organized enough? And have you received from the from Western European countries and the U.S., enough javelins enough stinger missiles are is in other words is the resistance the insurgency the men that have are fighting for their country do they have the weaponry that would be most effective to stop uh, putin's troops mm-hmm. that's an excellent question let me answer that for you so if we're talking about the organization obviously it's lacking and it's flagging from the russian army and that's actually extremely good for us uh because they're very slow they're immobile. They make lots of mistakes. And some of your analysts even said that they are, their, their performance have been appalling, that I'm quoting here. So, and we have been able to cause, uh, cause them a very big, significant damage uh, using the Javelin missiles, using the Panzerfaust from uh, Germany and Enlaps from United Kingdom. We have been incredibly successful at causing them lots of damage of the armor. And, uh, you know, we are really grateful for the support you guys have been giving us. Uh, you've asked, is it enough? And that's a great question here. We have so many volunteers that we can't enlist them into the army. There's literally not enough weaponry from our Ministry of Defense to uh, supply every single volunteer that wants to fight. So that's an answer for you right here. Uh, this, uh, the help from the West has been very efficient and very good, but we still need more in order to uh, effectively crush uh, his uh, insurgents and crush his invasion. Uh, I, I've uh, seen, you, I've yeah. seen yeah. many Russian tanks just destroyed. You know, I've, yeah. I've seen images yeah. of 12 of them taken out at once. Um, yeah, pretty- exactly. exactly. And that's, that's exactly why I'm saying the Kiev is not surrounded. Look, there is a line of armor coming in from the east. And just this morning, we have destroyed something like 10 tanks. It was like a small part of their uh, line of attack, and we have completely immobilized it and caused it to retreat. So uh, they are trying to encircle the city, but they keep failing because they, their performance is, you know, not, not very good. Okay, Obviously, I, I, I don't think you're fully officers. understanding what I'm saying, because I, I go through this map every night on my television show, and it's a little, it's far more visual um, than, than what you're saying and what I'm saying. We're really not saying, the, the, we're not saying anything differently. When I say he's created a perimeter surrounding Kiev, I'm not saying he's on the border of Kiev and the city. I'm saying outside, many miles away, that he has set up a perimeter around the, the city, clearly looking for the opportunity to take the capital city. It's, you, know, you don't need to be a general in, in the army to figure this out. But so yeah, far, the insurgency has been so successful that they've pushed him back and they're preventing him from moving forward. Uh, whether exactly. that can continue, I don't know. I mean, that's yes. going to be the big uh, question for for Ukraine. I didn't like that your president, Zelensky, I admire the fact that unlike other leaders of other countries in moments like this, that he would have gotten on a plane with a, a millions of dollars in cash and gold and, and currency and taken off and gone to safety. He stayed, and, and not only is he fighting, uh, he even gave out his location, which I thought was a little nutty on his part, uh, 
but he's being very brave. And it seems like the people, uh, the men that have stayed behind and people that have come in from the outside to fight um, have been extraordinarily brave and effective with the weapons that if the West keeps providing, uh, I think you guys have a great shot at stopping this. Exactly. You're spot on. All we need is just uh, more of help and more of financial assistance. You're absolutely right. The weapons that the West is providing are efficient. So uh, this insurgency will be stopped if the West will continue to support Ukraine, both financially and with military aid, that it has already been providing so far. Well, that's certainly very informative. And I just absolutely. want you to know there are a lot of people, you know, hoping and praying that uh, uh, that, that you win and uh, that he leaves your country. Thank you. Thank you. That's very important. And thank you very much for stressing uh, the point that I think is also incredibly correct, is that the, the people who are fighting for the right cause, uh, when they're fighting for their own country, when they're fighting for freedom against oppression, uh, they should be helped. Uh, I, I completely agree with you on that. And I and then while the women and children have an opportunity, and I, no child should be in a war zone. And I would urge them all to leave. No young child should die in this war. If at all, no Absolutely. more young children. Enough have already died. Absolutely. I completely agree with you on that. And yes, Poland has been nothing but supportive. We have uh, so much love for Poland. Thank you very much for them. All right. Hang in there. We'll check back in with you. Mark Savchuk with us. He's in a bunker. He's in the capital city of Kiev with about 10 other people. And uh, we'll get regular updates from him uh, as this uh, continues. 800-941-SHAWN is on number. You want to be a part of the program. Quick break. Right back. touch with the Hannity faithful. Join the message board at Hannity.com. Hi, 25 to the top of the hour. By the way, we just got this in exchange between Peter Ducey and Jen Psaki. Uh, Jen, are you just going to keep blaming um, Russia and Putin and the war uh, from now until the midterms? We just heard you say again that you think inflation is going to be temporary. We've heard you say that it was going to be temporary since last spring. So how long do you guys think temporary is? Well, again, Peter, I think what we do is we rely on the assessments of the Federal Reserve and of outside economic analysts who give an assessment of how long will last. The expectations and their assessment at this point continues to be that it will moderate by the end of the year. There's also no question that when a foreign dictator invades a foreign country, and when that foreign dictator is the head of a country that is the third largest supplier of oil in the in the world, that that is going to have an impact, and it is. And so to that point, inflation goes up today. The president's statement blames the Putin price hike. Are you guys just going to start blaming Putin for everything? Until the midterms? Well, we've seen the price of gas go up at least 75 cents since President Putin lined up troops on the border of Ukraine. And, and 
Last month, the statement didn't mention the Putin price hike. It mentioned inflation because of the pandemic. Why is that? Well, Peter, last year, last two years, there was a global pandemic. Everyone who's a global economist have all agreed that that has been the biggest contributor to date of inflation because of the impact on the supply chain. Obviously, global events impact the economy, the global economy, as well as global inflation. And the uh, price hikes as a result that have ex escalated over the course of time of President Putin's further invasion of uh, the impact on the global oil markets are, of course, having an impact. You know, it's amazing because we had, what, four months, 40-year high of inflation. The new numbers come out today. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, it is a 40-year high. If you look at the inflation in January of 2021, when Joey took over, it was 1.4%. You know, now we have a 40-year high, and that means everything you buy at every store you go to is costing more. The inflation rate over the previous three months is as high as it was in January of 1982. And that was the fallout from the disastrous Jimmy Carter economy. And Reagan turned it all around. Took time, but he turned it all around. And Reagan then created the longest period of peacetime economic growth in the history of the country. But the inflation rate is is 7.9% year over year. That's through the end of February, but it's 8.4% in the last three months, December, January, February. And the bulk of the increase in energy prices came before anything happened in Ukraine. And if you look at the monthly numbers for last year, after stalling at about 5.3% for most of last spring and summer, the inflation rate really started to explode in October of 2021. But it went up dramatically from what it was that Joe Biden inherited, which was, again, 1.4%. If you're looking at that rate increase, now it's 7.9%. So that means that's a 40-year high. Everything you buy in every store you go to is costing more. Every American was feeling the cost of Joe Biden's energy policies long before Russia invaded Ukraine. This is one big lie. J.P. Morgan, they threw out a truth bomb this morning, as somebody tweeted out. The Biden administration is open to easing sanctions on Venezuela in exchange to ramp up oil exports. Perhaps we can ease some sanctions on Texas, Oklahoma, Pennsylvania, all at Alaska, while we're in the mood to ease sanctions in return for increased production. I mean, it is, if you look at shelter, it's the single biggest component of of the consumer price index, 33% of it still widely understated. And you can, you can see, you know, everything is costing more. Can't even get a new car. If you're getting a used car, it's 30, 40% higher than it, you, we would otherwise pay. All right, let's get to the phones. Uh, Ken is in Pennsylvania, the great state of Pennsylvania. How are you, sir? I'm doing well, Sean. Thank you very much. Uh, hey, are you following, are you following the center primary out there? Uh, I'm friends with Dr. Oz. Known him for many yes, years. He's yes, an American first, make America great again, Reagan conservative. And, you know, when I said that about Trump, people, you know, ripped me to shreds. I think I was proven right. I'm, I will be proven right if Oz wins that primary. It'll be interesting to see. What's going on? Hey, uh, I was always wondering, uh, how did we all of a sudden become a net um, exporter of oil to a net importer? And I was uh, watching uh, Brian Kilmeade's show yesterday, and former Attorney General Bill Barr was on, and he said that uh, the oil companies are having trouble getting financing because uh, the insurers will not insure the loans. Uh, am I missing something? 
that, that's I, something I, I haven't thought of. I can understand it, though, because if if you take all of the different restrictions that Joe Biden has put in place as it relates to the energy sector, and I've gone over them in great specificity and detail, canceling the Keystone XL pipeline, that would have been done by now. The Alberta premier was very clear. We would have 900,000 barrels of, of Canadian oil being shipped to America every day if they didn't cancel the pipeline. So they're lying about that. If they didn't pause new oil and gas leases on federal lands, uh, we would we would be able to extract and, and do more exploration. And you'd find the areas that had the most potential. And that's where they start drilling and it would be the most effective. Then they have the environmental regulations and the mission regulations that they popped on everything. Then stopping, you know, all drilling and, and exploration in Anwar. Now, my point to your question is is very simple, and that is, you know, you're asking me whether or not the insurance companies won't insure it. The problem is, as the Petroleum Institute points out, just because it's an open leased, it's a, a por- portion of open lease land, the 9,000 leases, as they call them, doesn't mean that there's oil or gas there. It means that they have the right to look. The leases are granted before any exploration has ever done. So a lot of times you think there might be, there's indications there might be energy below the ground, but you don't find out until after you get the lease. And for a lot of these companies, they just cannot afford the risk of drilling if they don't know for sure that it's there. Now, as it relates to insurance companies, I think probably what would factor in, assuming that's true, and I have no reason to believe it's not, insurance companies are thinking, well, um, they're already at a two-decade high in terms of actual usage of leases granted. Um, there's probably not. There's probably too great a risk that there's not a lot of energy in the remaining leases that are out there. So if they per, if they would t- pick up these restrictions and, and knock them out or change course and and rescind them, then I think the insurance companies would be more inclined to to bet on the oil and energy companies to do their job. But I think those restrictions make it too big a risk for even the insurance companies. Okay, well, let's take them out of the equation right now because they weren't even um, in development yet, and the Keystone Pipeline was not in service. So my thinking was, what would they do? Did our government tell the oil companies to shut the pumps down, which created a situation where we became a net, importer of oil now what about what was i just i just explained to you all the restrictions that they put in place they paused new oil and gas leases they they updated environmental restrictions emissions restrictions uh they ended anwar drilling and paused new leases i'm i'm all of that combined is you're you're putting a stranglehold on the whole entire industry that doesn't need to be there especially now and if the choice is begging a murdering thug dictator Maduro or dealing going into business with the Iranian mullahs uh, or begging OPEC, I choose Texas, I choose West Virginia, I choose Pennsylvania, I choose Ohio, I choose Alaska. I'd even choose New York State, but they're too stupid in this state to ever think of fracking here. So I hope that answers your question. Uh, Bill is in West Texas. Bill, how are you? Glad you called. Hello, Sean. Thank you for having me. Thank you for calling, sir. I would like to address uh, some of the questions that the gentleman before me just uh, put on the table. Yes, sir. Uh, We can turn around 
this oil problem. I live in West Texas. I'm in one of the world's largest oil fields, the Permian Basin. I have a service company, and we and we work for all the major oil and gas companies. They can ramp up their supply, but we have major issues. Major issues is lack of labor. Over the last two years, once we had 1,500 rigs running two years ago, we're down to 625. We could be back to 1,000 rigs, but we have nobody to go out there and run the rigs. We have good-paying jobs. Everybody in the north, northeast, if you need a job, come west to West Texas because we can help solve this problem. $200 oil or $150 or $120 oil does no one any good. We can get it back into the $60 range, but we got to have be able to have our supply chain shortages relieved, and we need the government to take the cuffs that they have on us to release the chains a little bit and let us go out and do what we do best, be Americans and go out there and fix this problem for you guys. We can do it. I know we can. Uh I will tell you, I urge people to really hear what you're saying. You're telling people that maybe maybe they're in a dead-end job, young, you know, healthy guys that want a new career. You're saying that if you go down to Texas and you go to these oil companies, whether you have experience or not, you're, you're very likely to get a job at, at a pretty high-paying rate. Am I right about that? You're Exactly. That is correct. And, and if you're willing to work hard and learn, you can have a career that will last the rest of your life. And I know guys in the energy sector that are making a hundred and fifty, two hundred, two hundred and fifty thousand a year. Is that correct? Absolutely, that is not, correct. Not bad money for a hard day's work, right? It, it's a young man's game. Uh, they put in the hours, but they get rewarded for it, and they get all their benefits. But the main thing is. Energy, domestic energy, is our security. We don't need the foreign oil. We can take care of this problem ourselves. Give us a chance, government. Just let us go, and let's get this thing under control. Well, instead of begging mullahs in Iran and begging dictators like Maduro and begging OPEC, I think I'd rather just ask our friends in Texas like you and our friends in all these other states I mentioned because I don't think we have to beg. I think you guys will be grateful to get the work and, and pumping as much as you can pump and getting as much oil and gas as you can. So thank you for what you do every day. Um, I don't know why we don't have a president that can that, that is, it, it can't figure this out. It's not that complicated. Dave is in Wyoming. What's up, Dave? How are you? John, thank you for taking my call. I'm a big fan of your show, and I listen to you all the time when I'm traveling. So I, I really appreciate you taking my call. Well, thank you. I'm glad you called. So I have a, a question, and hopefully maybe you can give me some perspective on it. You know, historically, uh, in World War II, the Allies all got together, and, and specifically the, the petroleum production and the, the raw materials, steel, that sort of thing, production of the U.S. is one of the, one of the contributing factors that, that helped the Allies win that over time. Um, when we talk about doing ramping production up right now for the economy, I'm, I'm totally in favor of that, and I'm certainly not an anti-oil or anti-drilling person or anything like that. But has there been any realistic conversation that you're aware of as to the actual reserve needs that we would have if we got into a protracted land war? I haven't been able to find anything on the internet. Anybody discussing it? Um, well, I think your I think your assumption is that the land war would be on the continental United States. I don't think that's where it would be. Am no, I, am no, I, I don't think it, 
I don't think it would so, be. Are you so, all right, let's say it's a war in Europe then. It is, uh, to answer your question is, um, at, the, at some point, you're going you're gonna to hit a tipping point where inflation is going to continue to grow. Prices, um, the American people are going to get angry very quickly because this is a preventable problem and one that's easily solved. But you have to move now to solve it. And the answer to your question is, is we have enough natural resources that if we needed to warp speed energy, gas and coal production, we would be able to do it. And so on the reserve side, I think we need to have a uh, need to keep our reserves filled up to capacity. That's what I would do. I think tapping into them is a mistake, especially when you have the vast resources we have available to us. I'd finish that Keystone XL pipeline as fast as I could, and I'd take those 900,000 barrels uh, a day from Canada. Um, but they're not going to do it because they're beholden to this this radicalism, this new Green Deal radicalism. Um, I hope that answers your question. I, I've just got to roll because I'm looking at the clock, but it's a good question. It's smart, and we have we do have a smart audience. I'll tell you that. It keeps me on my toes. All right, that's going to wrap things up for today. Uh, President Trump will get his take on all the happenings in Ukraine, the economy, energy, oil, gas. Uh, Ted Cruz will join us. Tim Tebow joins us. Tulsi Gabbard and much, much more. Nine Eastern, set your DVR. Hannity, Fox News. I promise it's news you'll never get from the media mob. We'll see you tonight. Thank you for making this show possible. Back here tomorrow.